Uh, you've got a uh, wow. That's a, a fantastic planet you have there. No, nah, it was bad. All right, we're gonna start over. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies that we saw at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. My name is Jason. I'm Cody. And I'm Harry. And today we're going to be talking about Fantastic Planet, Fan Plan Stancast 2019. Is it a Stancast? No. no. It just we'll was a good alliteration of the long A Fan sound. Fan Stan. Stan. Cast. Fans. Mm, no, I did fans again. Ah, damn. Moving forward. 1973, it's a French film. It actually came out the exact same year, I just found out, as Belladonna of Sadness. Oh, wow. That so was it was a, a contemporary film. I've assumed one would have come before the other yeah. because like, both of them are considered groundbreaking Western oh, One still Western did because that's how time works, but they didn't appear wait, simultaneously. Wait, 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 wait. I'm right. getting a notification that they came out on the same day, the exact same time, the at exact the same, same moment, theater, just different rooms. I refuse. I refuse. It was like a Resident Evil yes. puzzle where two people had to press the button at the exact same time <laughs> to open a door. Uh, and we didn't think very highly of this movie, just to get right down to oh, it. Oh, I don't know. I, that maybe isn't totally I, fair. I don't think I did. Okay, that's fair. Can you give um, us a plot summary, Cody? I would love to. This is courtesy of Letterboxd.com. Shout out to our friends at Letterboxd. <laughs> follow Cody on Letterboxd. No. Uh, this episode follow has actually been brought to us by Letterboxd. Yeah, follow Harry and Jason on Letterboxd. Um, the, uh, the tagline they got here is, A sublime trip to a fine new world. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good world. <laughs> Also, that's overselling it. That world is not fine. That's <laughs> world actually, that's actually problems. to every li- living form. Yeah. Um, we'll have to read between the lines here, starting with the story of the Ohms. Between the lines? Joan Micklin Silver? That was a good movie. That I liked really that movie, movie more than you guys did. Just, I, uh, oh, did you say really bit. liked it? I really liked it. You gave it like a three, didn't you? That doesn't mean I don't like it. I think we gave it three and a half. With I'm giving light. you uh, the stink eye. We didn't do an episode on it, but we no, should. No, we should. Continue. I was going to do a Jeff Goldblum voice and say the tagline again. So just like imagine I'm doing that. Um, I won't do it. The story of the Ohms, human-like uh, got, um, creatures. Uh, wow, that's a, a fantastic planet you have there. No, nah, it was bad. All right, <laughs> we're going to start over. Uh, so the uh, mm, the the uh, story of the uh, the Ohms. Ohms. <laughs> uh, Is this uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind? What? What? Oh shit! Yeah, those, those things are ohms. called ohms. How did I make that connection? When did Nausicaa uh, come out? Uh, 85. 80, 80, yeah, that sounds right. Did it? It came out before Mononoke. Definitely. Yes. Mononoke was uh, ninety nine thousand. Yeah, ninety seven. Yeah. Wait, really? Right. Oh, that's much later. It's than pretty I late. It was Kiki and Kiki is eighty nine. Totoro. Totoro all came before it. Ponyo. Ponyo uh, was like two thousand twelve. I'm just listing. Wind rises. Where do you live? 
It's his next movie. The story of the Ohms, human-like creatures kept as domesticated pets by an alien race of blue giants called Drogs? The That's caption said, tra- like, T-R-A-A-G. Uh, I'm just going to say that. I think that. it's a translation thing because they, I've seen it in print uh, as D-R-A-A-G. We can call them Drogs, like Clockwork like Orange. Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Right, right. Fine. So these droogs, uh, the story the story takes Can you place. Do a British um, Jeff Goldblum. I'm not gonna. We have to get through this plot. So this is a tight ten. The story takes place on the droogs planet Yigam, where that's Y G A M. Uh, I don't know how you say that. Where we follow our narrator, an Jordan. ohm called Terror, from infancy to adulthood. He manages to escape enslavement from a drag learning device used to educate the savage ohms, and he begins to organize an ohm revolt. Yes, he does. Uh, the beginning of this movie starts us out um, with a child and its mother just trying to escape a, a drug. I think they're wild ohms or escaping ohms, right? They ha- they are coated with uh, rags and burlap yeah. to be wild ohms. Um, and one of them is a, like captured, quote unquote, adopt. Like it, it's framed as an adoption because the- so three three trog or drog or drug children um, end up sort of teasing this woman to death um, by picking her up and dropping her and knocking her around. And, and then we should set the scale here. They are literally like the size of mice compared to trogs. Right. Like they are giant, giant yeah. blue beings. Um, I don't know if how much we're going to talk about like the trailer for this movie, um, which is like the only exposure that I think most of us had sure. to this movie be- yeah, before it came out, the trailer at probably like a, a Uptown Theater Midnight showing I probably saw it at. Um, the trial and also obviously showed it uh, in the weeks leading up to now. But my uh, my brain autocomplete feature when I saw, because that first sequence of like the woman getting picked up, uh, that was in the trailer. And I have this distinct uh, absent memory of her like getting eaten. And that's what made me really nervous to watch this movie because it was like PG and everybody talks about it. like, oh, it's so psychedelic and like a fun experimental film and just uh you know really good fun watching these <laughs> human like creatures get eaten by aliens and it really freaked me out um that is it's not the f- case it's a freaky looking movie though. it is pretty and freaky. also looking. there's a amazing body count for something that is a, apparently pg although rating systems in the 1970s it's were a, yeah, far ni- different pre-pg PG. 13 yeah um so yes. it's the funniest thing to see like uh, what is it? The green slime they keep playing trailers for now that they're in like the sci-fi times at the Trilon. Instant terrible death of the greens, and it gets more excited yeah. each time he says the, the green title. Green slime. Thank you. Isn't there a yeah. green slime like theme song that plays, or am I thinking of it's a different movie? The green, green slime. slime. Yeah, I think but that's it. At the end of that trailer, it cuts like black, and then it cuts to. G. Rated G. <laughs> it's yeah. like the most violent, like instant death upon touching the green slime. Rated G. Yeah, there was something, rating systems were really different back then. Um, I also think that... Well, this was before uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which created the PG-13 rating. uh, Did that... By being super racist. Did that single-handedly create... Because, like, I think of Gremlins, which came out in, I think, 84. PG-13 came the year after. Gremlins was also a controversial movie for Gremlins being a PG movie was also, like, very eyebrow-raising. Yeah. Um, I think that it probably also has something to do with the way that animation was perceived in this time oh too. yeah like this um, is a kids movie right by, by those by those, by those times yeah and i think that that's just because that's how all animation was categorized back then uh you were going to say something about the trailer oh, oh just, just yeah that, that scene that you were afraid that she was going to be eaten yeah and i was like wow this movie that really, doesn't actually this happen it was really upputting yeah, yeah they don't do but that they just crush her from a height there are a lot of 
disturbing deaths in this movie. Um, Body count. Um, also, just the the presence of women's bare breasts. Uh, there's also an a, there's a, some peen. There's also a bare penis. This is the most uh, like explicit content filled PG movie maybe ever. It's at least. As far as like Se- the check boxes, I mean, we, we just off. brought up Belladonna of Sadness. Yeah, but Belladonna oh, of Sadness yeah. was extremely hard R. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, I guess sexuality is something I wanted to talk about. There's, in this movie, I guess maybe as once we get past elements of the plot that are important. Yeah, we should probably frame this movie a little bit more. Yeah. Right? Which is that it, it comes out of this tradition of quote unquote experimental films of the 1970s, experimental animated films, in which the sort of um, ridiculousness, I guess, is maybe the word I'm looking for. Wildness and sort of um, psyched... You mentioned psychedelic nature mm-hmm. of the animation is sort of the main selling point of mm-hmm. the movie. The Look at this. Yeah, the marketing and trailers of this movie really leaned hard into that aspect. Um, I think they called it mind-bending. They called it psychedelic, a journey. The um, sort of unspoken implication of this movie is you're supposed to watch it while you're high or uh, stoned or um, on acid or something. Right. I think that, that even I saw in reviews and stuff that, that there was marketing material that sort of implicated that, which is interesting. Um, so that that is all to say that, that in this movie, the sort of psychedelic nature of what you're watching is supposed to be foregrounded even beyond plot considerations. Mm-hmm. Um to the point where, where you know, oftentimes in movies like this, and I'm thinking of uh, Belladonna of Sadness, you just pulled up Yellow Submarine. Yeah, That's that was 1968. That's a pretty good example. So, yeah. Are there any other examples of these sort of psychedelic experimental animated films we can think of? Uh, I'm sure there Yellow are. Yellow Submarine is a great example. Right. But similar to Yellow Submarine, the idea is that a lot of what you're, what you're seeing on screen isn't necessarily to move forward narrative or thematic content so much as it is to move forward a different kind of um, appeal, which is just to be exciting or um, titillating or mm-hmm. uh, thought-provoking in a visual sense. Right. I, so this is supposed to be sort of um, very creative and exciting to look at. Right, and it's like, I guess even the marketing is super French around it, where like you can imagine if this were an American-made, American-produced, American-marketed film you would have had much more of like the green slime type of um, marketing for it, where it's like all very exploitation-y, very sci-fi, like fetishizing, I guess. Uh, But in the trailers for this, it's just like, it's selling itself on how weird and intangible a lot of it is, Selling itself on how weird it is, specifically, is a really good point. Because Mm -hmm. weirdness and the sort of idea of an alternative approach to or sensibility for plot and for theme and construction is really important to movies and to movies like this, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that the idea is supposed to be that you're seeing something that you've never seen before. Right. right? And I sound uh, maybe like I'm skeptical of that. And I think I am. I think it mostly works. I like Belladonna of Sadness, which we keep bringing up a whole lot. Um, I don't love this movie as much, but in an interesting way, this movie is also a lot more plot-centric than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, going into this movie, I fully expected it to be silent, first of all, in terms of no spoken dialogue, and I fully expected it to not have a comprehensible plot in any sort of sense of the word. The um, trailer, again, really sets you up for that. It conditions you for that. They, they show these blue figures, the trogs, literally like transforming into inhuman or incomprehensible shapes and going on these sort of... Um, metaphorical mind journeys mm-hmm. through space and time. 
there's some of that, but th- there's also a narrative grounding and framing that's spoken through the narration of the main character. Yeah, like all all of that is very explained, right? Or at least contextualized. None of it feels like... I mean, there are things that are... The main thing with this movie for me uh, that didn't quite land was like it does sell itself on that weirdness and it does like put that at the forefront. Many of the establishing shots in this movie are just of how weird the world is. Just like a creature that's like kept in a cage, uh, a natural cage with like these tendrils that stick out and it just grabs bats from the sky and slams them against and, like, the ground. For <laughs> that guy yeah, was awesome. It has this really funny yeah. fucking laugh. laugh. Like, like, I mean, and I, it's because like things like that are couched and contextualized and explained, or at least like very self-evident as like, this is this thing's place in the world that I don't think it worked so much for me. If I had like had to wrestle a little bit with it, if I had g- been given some tension between me and the story and the plot, I think I would have liked it a little more. Well, and interestingly, I think the reason why those cuts, and there are about maybe a half dozen cuts to just the sort of um, biological workings of an ecosystem that are, that have no bearing on the larger plot. The framing device of the rest of the movie is so close to a conventional um, three-act structure narrative that cutting away like that sort of takes you out of the movie in a way mm-hmm. that if they had kept a looser grip on a traditional structure, I don't think it would have. It would have flowed a little bit better right. uh, in many ways, I think. And I, I think that, that there's a tension <clears throat> in general between typical plot structure and the sort of um, experimental that they're courting in this movie. Um, yeah. It might be a confidence issue, maybe. Maybe they, they thought they needed to have more plot. Um, or it might just be that they... Um, wanted to tell this story and they wanted to they also had a lot of good ideas in right. terms of um, sort of creative mind bending um, fun that they wanted to have it's some of that stuff works for me really well sorry to interrupt no. and some of it doesn't um, we can get into specifics mm-hmm. I guess um, this I should say this is based on a story that existed prior to the movie so like I'm sure that they had some obeisance to pay to like that story to keep the main beats of it at the same time expanding visually on what they felt like it was trying to do. Um, I think it's important to talk about where the three X structure falls and what things happen in it. The setup is uh, that uh, Trogs don't quite enslave, but they do domesticate ohms who are um, intelligent. They're, they're formed and they think and act like humans, but they are definitely subservient. They're more like pets. They are humans though. I mean, I think they come from a planet called Terra, which I think is highly implied to be earth yeah. they act like humans in, in every conceivable mm-hmm. way i think that the idea is that we're supposed to see them on the screen and say oh those are us right uh and they are the set and the the first act is just us learning about how the trugs exist what their uh i guess what their government their system of government is yeah, like that's the how, stuff that i liked a lot i actually. did too like it it, it, it when you about 20 minutes into the movie into the 70 minute movie that feels a little bit longer than that i feel like it could be much shorter um you get these scenes of just politicking and uh like a general audience for the leadership the the, um the main trog i forget her name but it's the master master sin's daughter and he's like sort of the figurehead of maybe the president or king of this society uh, and you get these long scenes of them just debating how they're going to um, uh, manage their import, uh, import and export and while dealing with this growing threat that they um, 
that they perceive the ohms right. to be. There's like a there's like a literal round table. I don't know. I can't remember if it's a round table, but there's like a senate or a meeting of the minds led by Master Sin. I think his name is S I H N. Yeah, which you know, it's fun. I guess is it's cute. It? And he was his daughter, by the way. That's her he name. was. That's right. Um, but and and they have this box. It's it's this open air box with guards standing above it, and they're projecting their faces out to this crowd surrounding it, and they're just in there, and they have these like these very frank, um, political discussions with one another that are that are sort of highly politicized, right? Like there's a lot of fear mongering that goes on, and we see I think three of them at different stages, and they're always talking about the ohm problem and how to mitigate that, or how to control ohms better, or what they should do about the ohm problem, and they couch it in extermination terms. Um, ohms are at one point actually called vermin. There's a lot of talk of population control. The idea is that that ohms are humans are these vermin, this invasive species on their planet that can be domesticated and kept as pets, largely for children. That's how they're, they're always framed, is that children like to play with um, the ohms before they learn how to meditate, mm -hmm. which is a, a core component of the Trog society. Um, but if they can't be domesticated, they should be destroyed. Um, and they are eventually destroyed in these sort of, they're called de-oming programs, which are um, couched again as exterminations. They go out to parks and they have like literally um, pesticides. Like, yeah, I was going to say, it's like pest control. Yeah. Like that's liter literally what it is. Um, and they're, they're also like vacuums. Some of mm -hmm. Another thing that worked for me really well is I liked the fact that they made their like um, killing tools look very pointedly familiar to us. There were like vacuums and brooms At, and to the point pesticides. where like there's literally a ball rolling and just crushing bodies of own, literally just a gigantic sphere that rolls along and catches whatever. Yeah, and that stuff is effective, right? Mm -hmm. like, like both at scale and at the casualness of the violence. Um, I don't know that there's a real world analog. I think that it's pointed towards animal rights and it's pointed towards maybe racism and it and toward um, genocide. Whether that's the Holocaust or yeah, anything I else, I, I think in sorry on Wikipedia, um, there are a lot of reviews that spoke towards that and spoke towards what people perceived in this. I think it's it's sort of pointedly and again, in my opinion, maybe this is just a sensibility thing. Um, it's it's a disadvantage for the movie that it that it has no obvious real world referent. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's I, sort of I think I agree. It, it like gestures vaguely at the you know treating subservience and uh you know subjugating others there, right yeah like, except that the idea of of being generally more thoughtful and compassionate toward um things that are if not subservient then weaker than you then helpless um it's it's very it's what we were afraid koyana Scotsy would be going way back uh but and again, maybe this is just a sensibility that, that grinds up against me. There's like this very hippie uh, aspect to this movie, which is just this sort of finger wagging, like be kinder to each other in the most generalized, sanitized sense mm -hmm. in which like we're not implicating any aspects of culture necessarily or certainly any specific um, ideologies or any specific worldviews. Um, in favor of instead talking about sort of very broadly man's inhumanity toward man or, or man's general carelessness with the world that we inhabit, which is, again, like, it's such an easy target that it feels preachy and it feels like something that, you know, like, mm -hmm. like who couldn't just say, oh, we should be nicer to each other. It's like that's not, that's not a theme that is, that is particularly useful in terms of art, um, in my opinion. Um, right. 
it you know I like that's somewhat hypocritical of me in that I grew up with stuff like that that was in a, a similar sense generalized and it spoke to me very deeply at the time and maybe now that I'm older and more sort of cynical I'm more interested in more pointed critiques right which but is it, it feels weird to even call this a critique right because like to, to critique something you have to have a target and you have to have a um, a corrective sort of message. You have right. to say, like, this is what's wrong and this is how we fix it. And this movie doesn't really do either it of does those things. Uh, yeah, Fan Plan is definitely, uh, like, I think we're maybe all on the same page of, like, it's saying a lot without really saying a whole lot, right? Like, the first act, maybe the first half are uh, of the movie, they're kind of geared towards, like we said, more like animal rights leanings. And then you get near the, you know, the latter acts, the latter half of the movie, and you get repeated lines like, uh, oh, the ohms, they're dirty and they multiply appallingly fast. And it's like, okay, so this is what, like, you know, that's obviously unfortunately familiar. We so Now they're just, like, pivoting. Um, mm-hmm. Like, the ohms are just sort of a catch-all for all of the types of, uh, just, you know, the a, a mass role reversal of humans taking the role of everything that, that typically would lie, quote-unquote, underneath them. Right. Um, and um, it doesn't do a whole lot with that. The first act also includes... Uh, how the ohms exist under trog rule, and we are only given that one lens through Tiwa's uh, Tiwa's Tiwa. Yep, Tiwa's the daughter. Tiwa's ohm, which he treats as a pet, is, is the name of the ohm, who is sort of the main character. Although yeah. he his agency um, significantly falls away in Acts two and three, right, um, where he becomes sort of a bystander. He is the narrator throughout the movie. Yeah, which is ironic because in the first act he starts to listen into the way that Trogs learn. Uh, he, you know, it, some frits with his control collar with his shock. It's collar, not really explained. Um, um, allows had, him to. I had some logistical issues with this. This is me being a nitpicky nerdy asshole. But uh, how did he understand the sort of mind melding headphone? educational tool that the trogs use because they're all speaking french yeah i apparently that was a yeah that was at the beginning i, I loved how uh the ohms kill that woman and then it's th- these three like blue skinned alien dudes and they immediately start speaking french and i was like oh no they're french <laughs> uh <laughs> i but i what's his name Terror is able to learn this is key because when he he decides to break away he feels uh, you know, the crushing weight of his shackles decides to run away uh, and he is rescued by one of the wild. This is leading into like act two ish. Yeah, I think I think specifically his escape from um, Tiwa is the end of act one. It's really funny how fast it happens. Yeah, he, he's like, well, Tiwa started meditating. That's like it's a metaphor for like adolescence, interestingly, um, which we as we learn it literally is because uh, meditation is reproduction for the trogs but anyway he's like um tiwa started meditating she wasn't as interested in me anymore so i decided to run away and so that's it and then we just see him running away and he takes the headphone with him which is how he learns about trog society and then like you said um he is he brings his knowledge of trog society which most of the wild ohms don't they speak the same language all i mean again logistically they all speak the i same hated language. that a lot um, because in in act one the trogs pit the humans hit the arms against each other like Pokemon. Like little dog fights. Yeah, yeah. they have like little Pokemon fights with their <laughs> ohms where they're like, hey, like, like bring your ohm to the park and I'm going to bring mine and, and we'll make them fight and it'll be funny. And the ohms like do it and they don't communicate with each other at all at that point. And then immediately the uh, 
the ohm tear runs out into the woods and he's just speaking French with the wild ohm and it's like fluently why do they have a common language it doesn't make any sense yeah. and like it's important to the plot that those ohms the wild ohms didn't learn from headphones so they didn't pick up language from the headphones so how do they communicate with one another and how do they commu- communicate with domesticated ohms these are questions that the movie doesn't have an answer for because they're completely uninterested in them by this point you should have finished the bull that you started the movie with and <laughs> just like, be disinterested you should be one deep at yeah. least uh the headphones and we mentioned the like the political meetings too i like both of those a lot they don't really feel like they belong to this movie just like because i would watch like the the parts of the movie where it was like you know we're all we're all gonna learn about planet Droog for a little bit like that was like kind of fun in its own way uh, yeah and like I, those political like those political meetings are also like really great you're not getting spoon fed things I didn't feel like we were being spoon fed things about these worlds it felt at like all very me. organic world building yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually didn't like the headphone stuff as much because, like, after the first one, it became clear that one, the only thing There's that no they, point. they were ever depicted, right, that they were ever depicted learning was, like, literally the biological functions of animals. Which, yeah. like, remember in in elementary school when we learned anatomical details of animals? Sure. Uh, that was an important <laughs> thing to learn. And also, it's nonsense. Like, it's literally just techno babble. They're mm-hmm. like, well, they the, make up words. The, yeah, the s- spooked Pictaries or, yeah. Like, 16. Obonos on its like hind, which allows it to shit its right, and and it's just like oh, so this is just bullshit, and like that's not great world building to mm-hmm. me. Um, there is one thing in, in Act One that I really like it because it it was sort of um, gesturing towards um, the mechanisms of dehumanization and then um, destruction that that films like Blade Runner sort of. Uh, gesture at also which is that there was a lot of talk in the first political discussion about how sentient or how sapient ohms were where they they were like oh these things appear intelligent like they're adaptable and then somebody else asks the question like but just because they're adaptable does that mean that we have evidence of their intelligence Mm -hmm. and they like they go back to films that were made on earth and we see um, these sort of rudimentary films that were made on Earth, and th- and they're pointing to that as like evidence that they may or may not be intelligent. And I really like the idea that these things, these ohms, may or may not be intelligent. And the implication being that if they're not intelligent, then it's okay to destroy them. And furthermore, the fact that we can't arrive at a specific answer or a um, a one hundred percent certain answer gives us the right to treat them as non sapient. Exactly. That's something that Blade Runner does a lot. It's a great uh, in my opinion a great analog for real world dehumanization. The idea that, that differences denote a sort of lesser existence or a lesser interiority. Right. Which which categorically makes those people um, okay to slaughter essentially well it's it's very telling that the beginning of this movie is again the framing of mother and son being chased away and subjugated and eventually one of them eventually killed and it's never a thought of the trogs to uh to discover whether or not they're they they have intelligent life it's just like should we squish them should we drop them from a height and kill them or should we make them our pets like later it becomes wait maybe they actually have sentience maybe they have sapience maybe they can organize and, and again, communicate those those questions are sort of steered away from by that mm-hmm. society pointedly because they don't like the implications of their answers right they sort of bring up hey it's a problem for our again like shipping import export because our machines are like i don't they don't ever elucidate exactly how but they allude to the ohms being a problem for their 
planets or for bringing bring a problem for their ships? What is it, the Yuvas or whatever? Right. Uh, I mean, they're stealing crates of material, mm-hmm. um, which are apparently important to the Ohm's continued sort of, or the Trog's continued existence. So there, there's some sense in which that they're like pests doing pest damage. Right, and the more that they... Basically, it becomes the ohm, moving into Act Two. It becomes the Ohm's motivation to take uh, the to take materials and to uh, after terror in like um, brings it to them, give them knowledge of the world around them, so that uh, the wild Ohm's can adapt and maybe like find a way to I Which guess fight back. They they court another famous science fiction trope plotline in the second act that is abandoned pretty quickly, but. Tear is distrusted and maligned by the leaders of the Wild Ohm societies because he possesses trog knowledge, and they don't want to possess trog knowledge, and they control um, and subjugate their people to keep them from attaining um, trog knowledge, uh, and they're very fearful and distrustful of it, and that frames them as villains because um, not using technology and not using knowledge is, you know, it's something that in science fiction either is good or bad it's interesting the way that that science science fiction can frame that mm-hmm. either way but in this in this case it's very clear that like there are these tribalistic um human societies and they they are fearful and distrustful of knowledge and tear bringing it is sort of a sea change for that culture right fantastic planet never really does anything with that well it comes to a head because one Ohm challenges um, Tear to single combat, right? He says, now you must fight to prove, because I've thrown the gauntlet down for whether or not you should actually be here as a possessor of Trog knowledge, and uh, engages in, in this bizarre single combat where they're strapped, each, each combatant is strapped with, like, a, a monster. A lizard thing. A lizard thing that, that like, like a little baby holster on somebody's chest, and, you know, whoever dies that, first dies. That loses, was kind basically. of interesting to me in that it was interesting that all of the fighting happens by proxy. Mm-hmm. Like, they had a, their own subservient creatures that they used as tools to accomplish this ritualized combat, kind of in a similar way to the way they were used by... Um, the trogs so that was an interesting metaphor especially i sorry go ahead like you said it doesn't really go much anywhere with that it pretty much begins and ends there the guy who challenged him just says oh shucks and then they all go forward learning trog knowledge imbibing it even like um becoming very envious of it there's a scene where a group of them is inside of this headphones halo thing that the that the trogs use to learn that's very large obviously because it's made to fit a trog head and and ohms are very small uh, but they're sitting in it learning about, again, you know, pointless biology and, uh, and and topology. And somebody turns it off, and then they all get very pissed and turn it right back on. Like Yeah, it was kind of says. a funny scene. It's kind of a funny scene, but again, it doesn't really go, it doesn't really say anything no, or go that, anywhere from that there. that plot arc is sort of aborted by the programs that um, the trog start i think right mm-hmm. where mm. like all of a sudden it turns out that um the trogs are going to start deoming um tear is able to to warn the humans about deoming because he can read it on the side of the wall um so i guess that's sort of the culmination of that knowledge seeking mm-hmm. is that it gives him the ability to sort of save humans uh they also learn how to use trog technology to build rockets because of his knowledge so that's another way in which that particular arc culminates mm-hmm. because that's the third act Right is that the in in the face of these um, programs to destroy all ohms, um, T- 
Tear leads a sort of small group of survivors to this abandoned rocket factory, and they build um, ohm rockets. All of this is handled via expository um, narration, which is a bad storytelling it's device. Really um, messy. Throughout, I think that this movie leans really hard on expository narration, which is sort of a hack move, right? Like, I, it feels bad saying that because, like, this movie does a lot of other things in an interesting way, but it, it's so clear to me that it was like, we also need a plot, and we also need to deliver this plot, and we're going to deliver it in the least interesting possible way, mm-hmm. where we're just going to have this guy literally say what's happening to you. Um, uh, Cody, do you want to set us up for the third act? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, well, I mean, you kind of did that, uh, like when you, the talk of the deoming, um, that's, um, I guess, one of two. Like we talk about how Tear more or less disappears from this movie after the first half. One of the couple things he does do is um, he reads the written language of the Trogs, which also is interestingly different. From just like I don't know why they wouldn't be able to not read that when uh, what, when it they go, can speak goes back, the same language. Yeah, it goes yeah. back to the whole inconsistency of like, well, everybody, uh, all these species, fucking speak French, uh, so. and they've been learning through this headset for the past. Like they right. men- they measure that like a week in Trog time is ye- is a year in right. Ohm time. So it's like. They, you should have picked up the written language, right. at least enough to say Diom, right? Yeah. Uh, there was a, a brief, um, you know, through Terra's uh, experience with the wild ohms, there's this separate group of ohms that they have, like, a, a run-in with. I think they steal some shit from them. They go on a raid to the Trog camps yeah, and they come the, back with crates. Yeah, the hollow bush yeah. ohms. That was an interesting part is that these different tribes of ohms have names based on where they live. There's the Great Tree Ohms, which Tear was taken in by, and then there's the Hollow Bush Ohms, and they sort of compete with one another. Yeah, they're hostile mm. toward one another, yeah. which is yeah. like zooming in on that level. I don't know that the movie's really trying to say anything, or if it's just setting up that narrative framing of, like, there are enemies even at this level. Like, we're not all united against the trucks. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Uh, and then this is, and you know, we start to get into that whole body count that we were talking about. Um, there are pesticides being thrown at these miniature humans um a lot of them die the main characters don't um naturally uh tear lives tears um that first wild ohm that he finds um the woman she lives the there's like a a sage kind of lead uh ohm of the hollow bush um she lives uh, until the end she yeah dies and they reconcile uh, yeah they do sort of off screen we don't really see an arc yeah. for their relationship but they were originally rivals or enemies and then right. by the end they're friends and uh they're broken up about her death yeah i think the leader of uh tears wild ohm crew uh the one with the ball and mustache also lives uh that's how you know he can't be a bad guy because his mustache is really good yep no bad guys ever had a mustache exactly. classically mustacheless good yep, guys yeah precisely um yeah and then uh what happens then um, okay a so lot of people die yeah well, let's just get through the plot and yeah. then start talking about the arcing arcing themes but after the uh pogroms the um uh, Tear leads the rest of the Ohms now united against the Trogs. What's to, left of them? Yeah, well, it's a very small number, like maybe a few dozen, uh, to this abandoned rocket factory. They managed to like re-engineer all of the technology to actually shrink rockets down to their size to where they can operate and like use them to get to another planet. That's handled in like planet. a sentence. It, yeah, they're literally just like, we learned how to use the technology to shrink. And it shows like the shrinky-dinkying of a gigantic motor. Yeah, some slight narrative... Uh, tiptoeing there they do say the um 
li- or the time progresses differently between the life cycles of these two species. It's what, like a week in... Yeah, that's what Jason said. Oh, yeah, a, a week, okay, of, a week okay, in Trog time is a year time. Yeah, so like by this time, we're assuming... Um, I mean, by the end of Act 1, Tear is a teenager, I guess. By the end of Act 2, he's probably in his 20s. Like He's a man, yeah. yeah. Uh, and once they get to the, they, you know, it's still on the hunt. Trogs are still persecuting and trying to eliminate them. And they manage to escape last ditch effort to the strange planet that has been mentioned a few times throughout the movie as like a place as another. It's like a holy, um, holy site for the Trogs based on this sort of like Christ-like leader that they had that, that spirited them through a, um, rebellion against i think the former dominant society on the planet that they inhabit Mm -hmm. this is only ever spoken of once in one of the headphone learning sessions i believe and it's not really ever made clear but this person in the in the process of liberating his people he taught them this meditation which is where the um trogs and meditation became central to their society they go into this um fugue state and their minds are projected into the air and they fly to the strange planet. Um, when the ohms arrive on the strange planet, they find that the um, trogs are, um, they're inhabiting, they're possessing these statues, these ancient statues that are on the strange planet. Which are strictly human shaped. Shaped, yep, of course. Human centrism. Uh, that's another, mm, uh, we'll maybe get into that. Uh and they're meeting with other beings from throughout their galaxy. That's on, that's said very briefly, but it's interesting. And th- that's how they reproduce, is they have these sort of courtship rituals mentally um, on the strange planet. And that somehow correlates to um, the ability of the Trogs to reproduce. They call it strange nuptials, I think, right. is the, the narrative framing. And uh and this is a very important ritual for the trogs, and it seems like it's a delicate one. It, I think population problems with the trogs have been mentioned before in the movie, and the main problem that the ohms sort of um, uh, have against the trogs is that um, the ohms can multiply so rapidly and reproduce so easily compared to the trogs. Uh, so when, when the Trogs or the, the Ohms get up to the strange planet, they're afraid that the statues who are performing these courtship dances are going to ruin their spaceships. And so they, they blast them with lasers. Um, and it turns out that, that blasting the statues that the Ohms are inhabiting or that the Trogs are inhabiting at the time that they're inhabiting them is very bad for the Trogs. I think they go blind. It, it, seems it like. looks like they go like their eyes just stay grayed over as if they're still in that fugue state, but they're wandering around sort of brain dead. Yeah. And and destroying the statues is critical uh, for the trogs. Like that's a terrible thing because if the statues are destroyed, they'll have no manner to reproduce and their civilization will end. And so very rapidly at the end of the movie, we learn that um, in the face of the destruction of their species, they sue for peace with the ohms and the ohms and the trogs have this sort of... Um, they coexist. Right. One, the, finally. The, the war ends because they can't kill the ohms anymore because the ohms will destroy their statues. And that's kind of where the movie ends very abruptly, right? Yeah. Pretty li- like it literally ends on a shot of a young trog learning about 
how like how the armistice was reached, how the treaty, uh, how there was like the war ended. I and think, then, and this might not be true, but I think there might be a retroactive framing where it turns out that um, the whole time Terra was telling this story to oh. subsequent generations of Ohms about how the Trogs and the Ohms came to coexist and how they came to share their knowledge with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this all takes place in like maybe the last 30 seconds of the movie. This movie has no resolution, really, um, which is weird. Uh, it was weird that Tiwa never came back. It was weird that the whole knowledge um, sharing versus knowledge um, rejecting as a plot line never really came mm-hmm. to fruition. There are some aborted arcs in this in this uh, story. Uh, there was something in the IMDb trivia for this movie, um, so I'm going to take it as canon, uh, as gospel, where um, it, it was intentional to not have Tiwa come back. Uh, it's some sensibility of... Um, this country's filmmaking to have characters set up like sp- explicitly as symbols um, and just like when they're not needed anymore they'll just be cast aside just to jettison well yeah so like Tebow T- wasn't necessary to the plot anymore just because Terra left so in their mind it's like why bring her back yeah man I can I can dig that that's fine yeah. if, it, if it keeps it shorter fine yeah yeah, uh, we sound very negative to this movie. I didn't dislike it. I didn't dislike watching it. Um, I think beforehand I said, um, and I was sort of pithy about it, maybe uh, more harsh than I needed to um, be, but I think that the best thing this movie has going for it is probably that it's like 72 minutes long. It really doesn't feel like it overstays its welcome, despite having a lot of stuff that is extraneous, in my opinion. Again, a lot of the cuts that you talked about, Jason, um, there are also a lot of full scenes. There are scenes of the ohms that are like attacked by this bat-like predator um, that, that attacked their home, and it kills some people, and then they kill it, and then they like feast on its blood. Um, that scene has no bearing on anything. There are a couple of scenes like that, usually involving strange creatures that are sort of, um, sup- I, in my opinion, seem like they exist in the movie um, primarily just to be interesting to look at. Right, because... Oh, God. No, you. Oh, I was just going to say, the justification I would maybe give for that back, bat creature killing scene is they do something similar to one of the trogs. I was uh, I was oh, about to say, I think gotcha. it's probably like a stepping stone to... Rather just than like showing just going that, from, oh, the ohms can do this. Right, so because... Like, it's not pulled out of nowhere. That's the first time that the ohms are violent toward anything that's not another ohm, right? And then they kill this wild beast that's uh, invading and eating their people, and then again, they use, and they the, use same the same tools, tools to eventually kill and a same trog. tactics to down a trog and kill him. And that in itself comes from nowhere in particular because there's not a whole lot of like breadcrumb trails like that elsewhere in this movie. Um, like as we've said, a lot of it is just fluff. But that to me did feel like a conscious choice. We're gonna show these ohms killing one thing and then like progressively bigger things. Right. It's not like it. It adds a whole lot of narrative nuance to no. the movie. So sure. I, maybe I, it, I maybe definitely it kind see. of does. I mean, in, in the sense that, that as the ohms advance and become more organized, they also become more brutal in an interesting well, way, yeah. which maybe has some frustrating implications. That, but that is true. I mean, like, I was about to rebut by saying, well, they killed the bad thing for, like, as survival, but they actually kill it and then drink and bathe in its blood ritually. <laughs> like, literally. They, they fill a saucepan and mm-hmm. just pass it around. It's the most disgusting thing it's pretty gross yeah and it, it doesn't feel like it actually exists for any other reason but to no. be sort of gross and off-putting they, it's not shown that they're doing that with a trog later and i don't yeah. know if that's that must be an intentional choice because like complete quote-unquote savagery is not 
yeah, like the what they're trying to paint the Yeah, the movie often goes with. out of its way to be weird in ways that, that don't have an obvious thematic purpose or yeah, the, uh, reference. The scene of after uh, another thing that's, I guess, interesting in uh, showing the like relationships between the two societies being Trog and Ohm is that when Ter runs away from tro- from the Trogs and he's taken in by the wild Ohms, they make fun of his clothing. He's mm-hmm. dressed all this foofy, like fluffy cloud looking clothing. And then later there's some s- moron that hits the case. And he's <laughs> like, don't hit that case. It's a trap because it, presumably it's labeled trap because yeah. it, it turns out that he's, a, he's able to read the crates and that's why he's so useful. But this dude is like, he's like knee slapping with this little club against the case. He's like, ah, look at that idiot. <laughs> and then the case like opens up and swallows, swallows him. him and sinks into the yeah, ground. Anyway, it, it is a pretty saying, fucking hilarious scene. Uh, but then later they strip like a bunch of the uh, women, a bunch of the female ohms strip him nude and like leave him to these creatures that like barf up clothing. Really, oh, these little guys were awesome. They were they were like imagine that's Stitch Fix of the of the <laughs> whatever twenty three thirty. This episode has been brought to you by Stitch Fix. Yeah, they have like these Thanks little so foaming mouths and like all of these little threads that they shoot up like a Caterpie. Second Pokemon reference. Caterpie uh, and oh, uh, yeah. like. <laughs> fill in clothes for him literally just like little seamstressing yeah. a, like it's a, a, a rag cool. onto him it like again totally unnecessary scene that's just there to like set the world i guess yeah but for all as much as it sets the world up there are f- like precious few times that it actually does anything interesting with it um and one of those things i think is the general theme of sexuality that runs through this mm-hmm. movie I mean, you can make a case that this movie and many have about it being like an allegory for animal cruelty and an allegory for uh, racial disparity and violence. Um, and I like I, I think that the theme of sexuality plays into both of those a little bit. Um, sort of frustratingly, right? Like, yeah. again, as you're as you're talking, I keep thinking about how this movie, it seems to be wanting to court universality and um, it's gesturing at having something to say about a lot of very elemental aspects of humanity about violence and organized violence and sexuality and the way that societies advance and, and how advancing societies develop Mm -hmm. in certain ways and how that can, how the development of those societies can lead to, um, terrible things and also, um, good things and, and all of that. Like it seems to be making some pretty big swings and those swings, they seem like they're in conflict with how straightforward the plot of this movie is in a way that that is frustrating right because like in another movie the like mating scene for instance between humans in the way that that parallels the importance that the ohms place on reproduction would be interesting because it would have some implications about the universality of like sexuality and uh, species propagation as sort of um, driving aspects of growth and mm-hmm. development and and how all things, no matter how advanced or primitive, have that drive and how that drive um, sort of prefigures um, advanced development or right. cognitive development. Well, like even just the visual framing uh, of that one scene we're thinking of is it, it comes midway through Tear's time with the rest of the wild ohms and uh, he observes them at night climbing up. It looks like the skull of an old uh, trog, but climbing up and they eat these like radiating chicken nuggets to make them all horny or something. And man, what an all time snack that would be. Yeah. And then they have like a, a matrix um, reloaded orgy. 
Basically. But like even before then, literally, like, remember that? <laughs> I don't remember uh, that. I, I was laughing at you that. saying that I've not seen the Matrix sequels. Sorry. Uh, so continue. Laughing at radiated chicken nuggets that make everyone horny. They were. That was yeah. like apt but, description. But yeah, vi- very good. But even visually, like. I could go Bef- for some chicken the, nuggets. Before you know exactly what's happening, you can probably assume, but before you know what's actually happening, they climb up the crest of the skull, they're given the chicken nuggets, They come and they're literally glowing. They're literally enlightened by the knowledge of their own sexuality. They climb back down. Really weird. Nice. Real funny, sexy sex. All of a sudden, the sex comes in so and it rules. Great. It's the I best track to... on the, on the um, soundtrack for sure. This soundtrack has this really funny prog rock uh sensibility which is shared by belladonna of sadness and a lot of other it feels like experimental cartoons from this time which is really funny to me well, like, like I, it's the 70s most things were like playing with fair. prog right and this is like you're trying to paint a picture that everything's weird you might as well throw some like theremin in there or whatever but <clears> this <throat> scene like for having been driven by like uh, uh, like wah pedal guitar chugs and toms just bumping away. Then just like this really really soft sexy tenor sax comes in. I'm gonna have to pipe it in yeah. because it's really it's shockingly it almost feels out of place until the rest of the music comes in. I loved it. But that's when like uh, they start to disrobe and they run off into the woods to fornicate um, again. Yeah, that was sort of. This sounds weird to say, but it was sort of frustrating to me that that after this weird ritual. Uh, it was just one glowing man finds one glowing woman or one glowing woman finds one glowing man and then they run to a sheltered place. Um, it That scene is interestingly framed. Did, uh, you, did you want to see them a fucking? Uh, obviously, I didn't want to see them a fucking. But it's frustrating to me that it has to be so fucking heteronormative. That, yeah. that like there's just this that when one glowing man and one glowing woman love each other very much, <laughs> it like it frames it frames coupling and sexuality in like really bioessentialist terms. Uh, well, that's that's, how that's not a necessarily a fair criticism to make, but it was funny to me that like after this this group of naked people are gathered around this skull and they're all glowing. And it's like, oh, but then, like, after all of this, we're just going to pair off, right. basically. It was like, uh, well, oh, I mean, okay. that's, that's how this movie got the PG rating, right? We can't have... We can't have, uh, we can't have Morpheus young smiling fr- and we see people fucking in his sunglasses. <laughs> we can't have impressionable young French kids believing that lesbians exist. Like, why would that be a thing? <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, Tara was never invited to these ceremonies, right? That, that was that we the saw? interesting frame yeah. I was talking <laughs> right. about. Yeah, it that's... was like his first night or something yeah. with the big tree people. And he's like looking down and looking sort of uh, intrigued and scared by the ritual going on. Same dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, like when you're not quite at puberty yet, but everybody else in your middle school <laughs> is. And it's like, what's <laughs> happening down there? <laughs> Everybody's uh, glowing. Yeah. Uh, but contrasting that, like this um, a consensual experimental, like uh, reproductive society versus the trogs that they're like, it's hinted at that their reproductive uh, methods are few, far between, and not very streamlined, I guess. But then we find out again once they get to the strange planet, this is actually how they, that attaching their uh, disembodied subconscious to these statues in the shapes of humans on an entirely different planet is how they even go through the process of mating, right? Right, and I think that the big reveal there is that for all of the all are the Trog's supposed advancements in how um, developed their civilization is, in the end, uh, reproduction is still as central and essential to them mm-hmm. as it is to 
our society, the ohms, and taking that away from them is how the ohms sue for peace. And so there's like a literal leveling of the playing field, right? Where um, by taking away their reproductive abilities, um, sort of War of the World style at the end, there's like a day ex machina here in, the, in a similar way. But that's, that's the essential commonality between the two cultures that creates this um, equality. Um, remember that we all fuck i guess <laughs> uh yeah like the whole movie is this movie is ace erasure <laughs> the whole let's not laugh about that <laughs> uh, no, I, the whole real. the whole movie is um like it's set in the stage to express dichotomies and differences between tribe society and ohm society and then you get closer and closer to this commonality and the commonality is sexuality right right like, the trogs are were at one point subservient to another uh, society we're assuming that which is like, that's another Jesus interesting guy. element to this right is that the idea that this has happened again mm-hmm. um i'm so glad that uh, i really thought the strange planet was going to be earth i like i really was fully prepared for that plot twist you thought it was going to be the planet of the apes thing yeah <laughs> i was thinking that too or like like it turns out that Terra's adam and what's her name is i don't think she ever receives yeah. a name is like Eve. everybody dies except for Terran. right his friend, i, I and was fully go to earth. I yeah. i'm so glad nuggies. that's not what happened Come on, you can't tell me that they didn't look like chicken nuggets. Like, they're in this bushel. That he's Why is he still talking about the chicken nuggets? <laughs> they both got to get their chicken, chicken nuggies. nuggies. You hungry? I'm kind of hungry. Yeah, me too. I, I didn't, nuggies I didn't eat this, much right? today. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, like, the only other thing that I would... I, well, let me let me hand it off to Cody. Cause, and like, what off? Uh, some ch- you want some chicken nuggets? I have this some glowing this. chicken uh. nugget. Uh, we talked about the music. Um, the music in the uh, the mating sequence was really cool. Um, <laughs> didn't <laughs> didn't vibe with me the rest of the movie. Uh, I felt like I was I don't know. It was it felt ripped from like old school James Bond and just kind of like that. I think the sequence at like the sequences at the beginning were like during Tara's playtime, even the first sequence of like Tara's mother and baby Tara running away. It was just nonsensical background. That's jazz. prog rock. Yeah. It was literally cool. prog rock. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like it's, nonsense and jazz. It's sort of emblematic of, and I, I hate to keep bringing up Belladonna of Sadness. I like that movie no, please. a lot. I don't it, know like, why. Same year, it, it, same nationality. Right. It's a fine comparison. Uh, well, Belladonna of Sadness is Japanese. Was it a Japanese yeah. film? I thought it was a French It film. follows, uh, like, it's a, basically a retelling of the Joan, oh, Joan of Arc story, right. so that's probably why. Um and it, it's gesturing towards internationality in a similar way to this movie um, in an interesting way and universality of theme and statement. Um, that's, a, that's a movie that's like much less tight than Fantastic Planet, even in its music, right? Like I think that, that the Belladonna of Sadness's prog rock soundtrack is like maybe objectively worse than the Fantastic Planet one. Like that, that soundtrack can be rough to the point where like there are jam sessions in like 12 minute scenes where it doesn't sound like the instruments are in tune right yeah. like i think you mentioned that once when we saw it and it was like man it's true like there's it can be tough to it's listen discordant to. at this, times this movie didn't feel like that this movie's uh instrumentation and um composing was much tighter it feels uh, rhythmic it was also less interesting right yeah and and that's sort of how i would how i would uh think about all of the, both of those films in general is that uh belladonna of sadness is longer it's less tight that there are scenes with even less um referential sort of significance than fantastic planet 
I also like Belladonna of Sadness more. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's interesting and ironic to me that I arrived there because the thing I was afraid of in Fantastic Planet would be that it would be too long and it wouldn't make enough sense and it would sort of put me off in that way. And that's not at all how I was put off. In fact, I think you, Jason, said that you wished that this had been a silent film. Yeah, I w- you, I w- you would cut all of the narration out of this movie. I think personally... Uh, I don't know if I could say, like, literally if I just removed the audio track today, if, if it would feel the same or better. But, like, most of the speaking that's done in this movie could be expressed, like, everything that's like, that's ex- explored could be expressed th- rather through, like, visuals or, you know, short um, expository, uh, l- like, what's the word I'm thinking of? Just little montages. Mm-hmm. Like, in a much more compelling, like, the strength of this movie is its character design, is its, like, moments of uh, absurdity. Um, and it really feels like when you have somebody talking over that, even if it's to explain what's going on, it feels like it distracts from that in some pretty significant ways to me. And the, the focusing of this movie that the narration brings maybe does it more of a disservice than it does a service. Yeah, and maybe we only feel that way because we haven't seen the alternative. Like maybe if we had seen a version of this movie that was much less directed and much more about your sort of takeaway, and maybe that's what I was expecting was something that I would have to do a lot more projecting onto. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this movie was was surprisingly straightforward, in my opinion. Maybe I was I was more interested in that self projection. I don't know if that's something that I can fault this movie for, but I think that that ultimately the the product we came away with was something that is surprisingly. Um, it's surprisingly easy. It's surprisingly unchallenging, right? Yeah. Like I don't. I feel very comfortable with my takeaway from this movie and i don't feel like there's a whole lot of that <laughs> i have to I'm like scrounging around looking for something with. that confuses me and it, right it's Usually, not yet yeah um yeah i felt it was remarkably straightforward i mm-hmm. liked looking at this movie a lot yeah. like i i don't know how you two felt about i mean we talked about the animation a little bit i felt like i vibed with it pretty well um i it doesn't I, look like a lot of um animation yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It has a very distinctive right. appearance. It almost looks like um like medieval um like Hieronymus Bosch. Hieronymus Bosch, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh like paintings, right? It didn't it kind of look like that it, to you it, or it, it does. Like uh that's the last thing I want to talk about with this movie is like the character design and animation. I think that those things go a long way toward expressing uh what the story wants to tell. Uh, but I just like expected a little bit more from the story and the plot. I guess the sort of really garish character design. Um, the what did really you describe it as? Uh, Susian grotesqueries. I think <laughs> yeah. was your Susian grotesqueries. Okay. Very uh, good. Because they are like we talked about um, uh, Yellow Submarine, which came out a f- few years before this movie. Um, and it has a lot of the same uh, discipline of just like these non-proportional, uh, vaguely humanoid uh, creatures at times, or like we can find a physical analog for a lot of these creatures, but a lot of them are just completely amorphous, strange, belching things. Um, and I think that the limited animation of this, while like a surprising, um, for as much as this movie is talked about in terms of its visuals and its animation, it's surprisingly limited in terms of animation. Like a lot of character cells are just reused. There are a lot of like Scooby-Doo scenes where you'll see a character running and then just like, you'll see that same character running past the same piece of uh, landscape a few seconds later. Like a lot of, I don't want to short sell the people who made this movie, but a lot of shortcuts that get this movie to where it needs to be visually. Um, I think that works in its favor at times because it feels a, li- a lot more immediate just by the nature of the medium. 
Um, there are all those establishing shots we talked about where just some cre- crazy, creepy creature does something weird uh, is just so immediate that, like, it has most of the theater laughing. Mm-hmm. Like, even though what is happening is actually pretty creepy and weird. Um, there's one scene where we just see an egg that's cracking. And what pops out of it is like this little chick uh, thing. Yeah, it looks like a little skinny, like, you know, the little creatures from the nerds boxes. They're kind of chubby. This looks like a really skinny version of that. And then another character comes back and comes by and starts licking it on its head. It's like a weird hippopotamus thing. Yeah, it's it's got two legs. It looks like a weird fucked up dinosaur. And it starts licking its head in a motherly way. And then it starts licking its back in a motherly way and then just eats it, gobbles it up and walks away. I think that those are those are pointedly framing um, the conflicts we're watching unfold in these sort of um, unavoidable or universal language of struggle as nature or as human evolution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the way that this movie is attempting to break down the, the idea of um, sort of civilized advancement as something that isn't true because in the end... Um, these struggles always exist and sexuality is always central to any sort of development no matter what and sexuality is fundamentally um, also driven by nature and a a natural design Um, I think that that's maybe as I think about it the the framing that that's going for is that like it's it's attempting to depict the way you would depict like uh, I kept thinking of 2001 which does a similar framing device in that it it sort of the first act of 2001 sets up this struggle of primitives and then you see the literally the stick flies up into the air and it turns into a nuclear satellite mm-hmm. and the implication being that like we've advanced this far but but the fundamentals of hum- of like natural struggle and selection still exist and are still fundamental to the way that we've designed our self perception mm-hmm. um I like how you equated Fantastic Planet with, like, one of the most famous, best edits of all time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know. It, I don't know how amazingly this animation works for me. Um, how fantastically? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and for similar, I have a similar criticism of it that I do of the film at large, which is that it's not weird enough. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird uh, there, Sounds like you should have been smoking beforehand. To make, that, yeah, maybe. That's, but, a, that's a great point because I, I agree, but I want to bring up some of the like weirder moments that actually got me like that were what I thought this movie was going to be again, meditation until it's revealed what it means to the trogs um, is just sort of done a few times. They say that it's like how they spend most of their time, but not really what it's about or why why they do it. Uh, But in those scenes of it, again, they go into these fugue states and their consciousness appears as a bubble and it flies away. But there's one scene where there are multiple trogs, some of the leaders of trog society uh, just sort of like, I was about to say they're just vibing, but they are. They are like, just vibing, they're dude. Just, like, they're just sitting there, and their bodies start to go like all gooey the, and start to mesh with one another. There are these weird black wires that are interfacing with their bodies somehow. This just like organic thing that's just yeah, it's tweaking their nips, right? Exactly. And their bodies Cody, are, care to and their, their the clothing is nope. is like is waveform sort of um, morphing and shifting along with their bodies, and their bodies are like like. Conform, like congealing into one another and they're like 
um, they're sort of combining, but their heads remain distinct. And then uh, Tear runs into it, and the the father like opens his eyes and looks kind of pissed. He ruins the orgy. There's some really funny uh, stings in this movie of showing the ohms reacting to things, but they don't have eyebrows or any sort of facial features. <laughs> so it, it just like it's their completely like big bulbous eyes, and like <laughs> yes, maybe like doing a, it now. yeah, like a little smile on their face or. Uh, and he, and he says something to the effect of like the imagination was so good today. Like I hate that those ohms, those pest ohms, interrupted it. Um, that was an interesting scene for sure. Yeah, uh, I that was probably the. If the movie had more stuff like that, I probably would have felt better about it. And like how its themes and what it's trying to say, if anything, works with what it's like what we're seeing on screen, uh, because that like is their their collective flesh right uh becoming one while their consciousness is away their bodies just sort of don't matter right i don't know that was yeah that was I, probably my favorite part of the movie honestly and it's it's interesting that you wanted more of that because that is there's another tension there right which is that we also liked how short this movie was mm-hmm. and how it was straightforward although we maybe wanted it to be less straightforward but we also needed those scenes even the scenes that that have sort of that become purely conceptual or um less concrete more psychedelic we wanted them to have very um pointed thematic resonance and significance we just talked about alien and that's that's a movie that does it better than almost anything else right that like i think everything in alien from the set design to the uh framing to the shot choices to um the character and monster design is all very pointed and it all has a um central significance pointed back towards that movie's ideas Mm -hmm. and ideology and themes um you want something like that in a movie like this in fact the fact that it's um courting the idea of like a, a psychedelic um conceptual sort of uh framework makes you want to foreground those elements more uh where like 2001 you want you know, you want that that final scene of two thousand one where um, there is no sort of comprehensible plot significance, but you you are able to derive a deep thematic um, resonance from it. Um, and I I don't know that that this movie gets there. Yeah, it's this is, it's a movie brought down I think by a lot of different tensions. Um, yeah. It's uh its soundtrack is actually going back to what Cody was saying how it doesn't work. Uh, it's it's great synecdoche, I think, for the entire movie. Like, the concept of prog and, like, experimental music is to create things that are dissonant, that create friction between the listener and the creator. And this movie ends up being just kind of, like, weird but groovy music. Weird but, uh, you know, like, boppable, I guess. Weird but saxy and stuff. Yeah, it slaps. Yeah, it's, at it's, times. it's wild, though, right? Like it's, I never, very, it's very tangible. I can get my hands, I can grab its haunches, and that's just like what I, that's not what I need to be able to do with, yeah, with a yikes. movie like this. Yeah, I never would have thought... I, I had the chicken nuggets, okay? <laughs> I never would have thought in a million years that uh, that our criticism of Fantastic Planet would be that it wasn't weird enough. Yeah, But that's fucking absolutely weirder. where I am yep. with it. It's like, it's definitely just not strange enough. It's neat looking. I would recommend it to anybody who's like interested in cool creature design and, you know, early anime, yeah, like early it's, it's from Western a, animation. There's like a, oh God, I say this too much. There's like a hauntology of Fantastic Planet where like it, it, it seems to arise from a 
history and context of animation that never really went anywhere. And you can see that, that this movie could have been influential and could have led to a development of an aesthetic and a um, sensibility of animation and genre that didn't ever really develop, at least in my experience. Yep. I'm not very familiar with French animation, so maybe I'm talking out my ass right now. But that's an interesting element, right? That like, oh, this was like a touchstone for a thing that never really was. Um, and there's something really provocative um, about that. I, I think this movie highlights the split between Western and Eastern animation really well. Because like, I've forgotten the Bill of Donner of Sadness was a Japanese film, but like, same year, contemporary with this movie, and just a world of difference in terms of its execution, conception, creation, um, that I don't think like could be course corrected. It's just like a very distinct cultural difference in like the industry. So our review of Fantastic Planet is go see Belladonna of Sadness. <laughs> Not nearly anime enough. Is there anything else that we wanted to recommend? I know we talked about adding that to episodes. That's a good question. Uh, Yellow Submarine, I think, is fun to watch in, in through the lens mm. of this. I mean, it's, whether it's, it's related lighter. to this movie or not, I don't know if we were doing general recommendations. I like that. Yeah, uh, I watched Darjeeling Limited last night for the <laughs> last uh, uh, for the like fourth or fifth time in my life. I love that movie. I'm glad that you're an advocate for that movie. I think it's often um, disparaged. Yeah, yeah, I like it quite. What he's trying to say is your movie time. sucks. No, Defend I, I think yeah. I like that movie a lot. I haven't seen. Oh, you could read my review time. on Letterboxd if you wanted. I've never seen it. I don't okay, want to ruin it for fine. myself. I also have a pet. Wes Anderson movie, um, which is Life Aquatic with Steve Zazoa. That's one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. That's, that's in I feel my like top people like don't talk three or about four. it. A lot. No, it's in my like top three or yeah, four. Wes Anderson, great. I love it. Uh, Isle of Dogs fucking blows. Yes, um, don't watch that one. Um, let's see. Uh, pulled up on related to Fantastic Planet and Belladonna of Sadness on Google, which we're looking at right now. It says it's similar to Akira, Paprika, Spirited Away. Ghost in the Shell, Princess Mononoke. Uh, what's that last one? Fritz the, Fritz cat. the cat. Pick um, like two. Pick two from. The, pick your top two from that list. Akira, Paprika, Spirit Away, and Ghost in the Sh- Ghost in the Shell and Princess Mononoke are all phenomenal movies. Yeah, yeah, uh, are, we were talking really before I started recording. There's an argument to be made that Spirit Away is the best movie ever made. <laughs> that I might. That I might make. Uh, we have an Akira episode that just released. Maybe watch that. Satoshi Kon's movies. Uh, Any Paprika of Satoshi Kon's movies. I've gotten directed. into a real Kon hole recently. He rules. Yeah. Did you? What did you? What did you say? He's a great. He was a great filmmaker. R.I.P. Yeah, uh, we just watched Millennium Actress. That's a fantastic movie. Um, Perfect Blue is now on Blu-ray. That's one of Jason's two favorite films. Uh, <laughs> I haven't put it on Letterboxd yet, but I, I'm going to watch, watch it again and then put it on my favorites. I'm going to force you to make a top four. <laughs> well, good Coward. luck, motherfucker. Yeah. Anything else? Any other thoughts? No, we said we were going to keep this to a 12-minute episode, so I've been good for a while. Yeah. It's been an, an hour 19. Have you uh, have you made a recommendation yet, Jason? Uh, any Satoshi Kon movie? Yeah, fair. I don't I don't have much beyond that. I don't know what I've watched recently. Paprika is probably the most similar. Uh, Millennium Actress is fantastic. Yeah. See that one. Um, see all of them. See I haven't seen Paranoia Agent, but I'm sure it's great. I got it. There's no legal way to There's watch that. There's absolutely no legal Literally, way like, in America it's not to watch it's not agent. in a funny way like, oh, you go to pirate it. It's like literally no physical or digital media versions of it yeah, exist. I'll find or a way to pirate it. Don't you both shake your head at me. No, I would love to uh, yeah. watch that with you. Let's work yeah. it. Um, yeah. Thanks for the invite. Our review of Fantastic Planet is put Paranoia Agent by Satoshi Kon on Blu-ray, you fucks. Put you, all of Satoshi Kon Honestly, Kohn. what are Listen you doing? here, Criterion. Yeah, Criterion. You know G-Kids came out with the blue, perfect blue Blu-ray like yeah. because... Um, no, I'm thinking of the Ghibli thing. Ghibli's no longer the a Disney perfect thing. Blu-ray. The perfect blue. 
Ghibli's no longer a Disney thing? Yeah. No, they had a, a split, and it's That's all G-Kids rules. now. Wow. I don't well, know how... You love to see Disney lose, don't mm, you? I love to see it. I love to see Hayao Miyazaki exerting just all, like, the most thorough creative control over everything. Hell the yeah. blade that said no cuts, no cuts sent yep. to Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Ooh. Fucking king shit. <laughs> in, the, in this house, we stand Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> uh, the best director ever. Maybe not a great father. Uh, that's... Ouch. Anyway. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. This has been an episode on the 1973 film Fantastic Planet. Uh, my name is Jason. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, my name is Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. And I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. Uh, and follow our account at Tri- Try Love Podcast. Uh, find us, find an episode you like for a movie you've seen. It's best if you've seen the movies that we've talked about. And uh, and leave us a review if you like. And go to Trilon Cinema. Oh yes, they're great and show great movies. Yeah, definitely go to Trilon. We've got some really interesting episodes coming up. Very yeah, and I think uh, if you are a Aaron fan, an Aaron stan, I think he'll be back uh, next week, right? So maybe, maybe. we'll see. We'll see. We'll he see. wasn't here this time. He earns his which earns of his course I love. Back. Uh, this is Tri-Love. the classic um, stray dog group here. But Aaron will be back uh, for better or worse. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks. The Green Slime.